Hi, this is Angana. I work as a research associate at Delhi Policy Group. Today, I'm going to discuss with Amlan uh, uh, India's economic diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific. I am Dr. Amlan Dasgupta. So I am an associate professor, associate dean of research at the General School of Banking and Finance at OP General Global University. I work mostly on climate change economics, also in development economics. You're listening to Indo-Pacific Voices, a podcast for regional perspectives on a wide range of topics with one mission, to explore the emergent issues facing the Indo-Pacific. My first question to Amlan is, is promoting economic diplomacy based on geopolitical constructs a good idea, given that in geopolitics there are only permanent interests but no permanent friends? Case in point is Indo-Pacific. Interesting question. Yes, there are always constant geopolitical interests, but uh, very few permanent friends or enemies. So in my opinion, of course, this is uh, all economics has a political aspect to it. And your geography is going to situate that. What, according to you, are India's strong sectors in the economic realm to offer to the major economies of Indo-Pacific? Well, to answer that question, I would first point out the strongest sectors in India in general without any reference to how they should be relevant or not for the Indo-Pacific. India is is perhaps currently the largest country in the world in terms of population. So uh, our main strength area has to be human resources. Unfortunately, a large part of our population uh, suffers from lack of training and access to resources. And this is a potential area for us, which uh, we can become world leaders at some point. And if we are able to develop our human resources, there is nothing like it. However, At this point of time, we are a mixture of an agricultural economy versus an semi-industrialized economy. The most important things that going forward we can offer to the Indo-Pacific is in the services realm. Uh, We can think about uh, development of uh, human capabilities and we can export that. Uh, nowadays, as you would know, that you do not need to relocate uh, human capabilities in order to export them. You can outsource things. People can provide services sitting at home to people who are right across the globe as well. So I think going forward, that would be our main areas. Uh, however, to some extent, we have to concentrate on uh, manufacturing industry because simply because of the fact that uh, history dictates that no country in the world has actually grown super fast without attention to manufacturing industries. Uh, we would very much like to break that template if possible because manufacturing industry requires huge uh, investments which we are not very good at. Uh, but uh, still we have to believe that that is something that we need to do simply because that's what everybody else has done. What do you think about these economic integrate 
action initiatives like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity and what they entail for India's economic strategic interests in the region. So, Angana, there is there are so many different uh, agreements of this kind that India has been part of. Some of them, for various reasons, we have not been part of as well. Uh, and those those are those have happened in the Indo-Pacific region, but uh, we have decided to not be a part of it. I believe that the idea behind this is eventually to uh, generate more trade. Uh, that is the main engine through which to which economic prosperity can actually be enhanced. Uh, so, in terms of Indo-Pacific economic framework, it doesn't have a lot in terms of lowering of trade barriers. Um, so, uh, if you are if you ask about that specifically, perhaps it will. I do not see that having a very transformative impact on India, in particular. Uh, however, uh, if we talk about these kind of agreements as a, uh, you know, as a category or a class of agreements, then yes, they do have a lot of potential. Uh, but there are extremely uh, difficult you know, uh, stakeholder interests here, which have to be overcome. So the basic uh, economic principle here is that we would like to trade to our advantage, right? So we would like to manufacture and sell products and services uh, that we are good at. And we want everybody else to buy that. And at the same time, we want to limit competition, right? So this uh, is a balancing act between liberalizing trade and uh, at the same time, protection. Uh, if you look at the history of underdeveloped countries that have gone on to become uh, middle-income or developed countries, most of them have done this through selective trade barriers and selective liberalization. So certain sectors have been protected, certain sectors have been liberalized, and at the same time, they have been able to locate markets uh, both at home and abroad. Right. So if I go and ask another country who's trying to manufacture exactly the same thing as I am trying to, and I ask this country that I want to sell my product in your country, but I don't want competition for me. This is something that obviously the other country will not agree to. So there is a basic conflict of interest which needs to be overcome. So trade relationships or trade agreements in the, of this kind would work best if there are strategic complementarities. So if one country is doing something which is helpful for the other country, whereas the other country is doing something else, which uh, the first country can benefit from. Uh, unfortunately, many of the countries in the Indo-Pacific region are similar. Uh, so this is al always going to be a challenge. Uh, and that is perhaps one of the reasons why India has chosen uh, not to take part in certain uh, trade agreements. Uh, so we are trying to make a balancing act out of this. But again, as I as I pointed out, because of the basic economic logic going against this kind of uh, agreements, uh, it's always going to be a challenge. It's always going to be a challenge unless we we trade with somebody who's very very distant from us, and we can have. It's it's more logical for us to have an agreement with say Japan or. Singapore, maybe. Uh, 
uh, as opposed to somebody like China. Although China would perhaps be the biggest uh, economic player in the region, and it, it would make most sense to have an agreement with them, but uh, uh, it's going to be very, very difficult to do something like that. Given that in future, there are likely to be economic and climatic shocks to the supply chain in almost all countries, how strong is India's resilience to these shocks and can we collaborate with other partners in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that is going to be very, very essential. But again, uh, supply chain resilience has its own logic and its own requirements, which needs to be taken into account. Right. So I, I have always thought this as a very interesting example. It's a bit old, but it demonstrates how supply chain resilience actually plays out. So this is from the American Civil War. So during the American Civil War, the North and the South are fighting. And the North basically blockades uh, the, uh, the ports of the South, which means that they cannot export cotton to the, to the United Kingdom at that time, uh, which, which had all the cotton processing industry there. So this was a major disruption to the supply chain. So what happened? What happened was very interesting, which is that uh, it led to the development of uh, cotton cultivation in other areas, uh, like, for example, in Egypt or in India, in fact. And the fact that, uh, um, you know, in the western part of India, cotton textile is such an important industry uh, even today is largely because of this fact that uh, the, the UK industry of cotton processing at that time shifted its suppliers from uh, the south of America uh, to India and Egypt. And for that, they needed two things. They needed a financial system that would finance this shift. So they, it also needed changes in their factories and machinery. But they were able to do that because they had the, the money to do that, basically. And the second thing is that they could, and, and they were not stopped by any sort of trade restriction. So these are th two very essential things in a supply chain uh, resilience. So you need to have a financial system which can handle shocks. So that, and you expect there to be more complicated and more severe shocks uh, in as you go into the future, because of course climate change is coming in, and we can see that there is a lot of uncertainty in the politics uh, that is going around between different countries. So you you expect there to be various kinds of shocks, right? Now, the supply chain has to be resilient to all of this. And I started with a specific example, but I'm not suggesting that the supply chain has to identify all such risks and take care of that. What it needs is general resilience in the sense that uh, if there is any kind of uh, eventuality like this, where it is getting disrupted from one set of suppliers, then it needs to have the wherewithal to shift as quickly as possible to other others. So for that, they first of all need the financial muscle to do that. And that is an internal thing, uh, which obviously India has to work on on its own. But the other side of it is to be able to shift suppliers to other suppliers and not be stumped by any kind of trade barriers or restrictions or you know political exigence. So that is something where what you are suggesting here that that comes into play right so if we are able to partner with 
other countries who are closer to what we do or from where we actually take our supplies or where we source our um, uh, products from and also where we sell. If we have seamless trade relations with these countries, then obviously that will help a lot uh, to bolster the resilience of the supply chain. So, and we, sh we should identify countries like that and we should go forward and try and cement our relationships with these countries. So, moving on to my next question. India has been uh, steadily improving its rank in ease of doing business. How can it create broader market opportunities for products made under Make in India initiative in the Indo-Pacific? So first of all, there are two aspects of what you what you asked. Firstly, uh, ease of doing business is mostly about inviting other people to come and do business in India, uh, which is the opposite of what Make in India is uh, perhaps uh, trying to uh, do. Now, of course, other people can come and make in India and sell abroad. That is also possible. Uh, the most important aspect of Make in India is to uh, generate uh you know uh, generate business manufacturing uh in india by india so again if you want others to come and do business in india that requires a separate set of policies and so sometimes opposed to what you would want to do if you want to promote uh indian businesses uh to uh, produce in india and maybe sell abroad or sell domestically whatever wherever they can so there is again a little bit of a conflict here. Uh, and of course, uh, we would like to invite uh, people, countries, businesses, industries from uh, other countries that are close to us because uh, not only is it going to help us directly by increasing uh, economic growth in India, but it also creates bonds, which again, can be uh, leveraged later on uh, for any uh, any situation where we need help when where where we are in a crisis. However, ease of doing business is a very, uh, as in my opinion, it's, it's a kind of a problematic thing because the easier you make it to do business, actually, the more things you compromise for your own population. So, like for example, if you make it easier for people to get environmental clearances to set up factories, it means that you are you're basically selling your environment short, uh, which is something uh, that China experienced in a big way uh, during their huge growth spurts that they had where, uh, for a significant time period they were growing at more than ten percent uh, every year. Uh, they actually compromised environmental standards badly. Uh, at that time. Later on, of course, China has realized its mistake and has tightened these regulations significantly, which perhaps has led to their growth rates uh, going down quite a bit. So the point that I'm trying to make is that the more uh, allowances that you give to businesses, the more uh, easy you make it for businesses to come in, uh, sometimes or at, at some level, so obviously, um, reducing corruption, red tapeism, and all of these things are going to be a win-win situation. So this is something that's going to uh, make uh, it easier for everybody to conduct business. At the same time, it's going to be beneficial to the population, the domestic population. So the, those those things I'm not referring. But after some time, in order to invest 
uh, or you know, in order to invite people or in order to attract people to come and invest, you have to start making allowances like giving them tax-free zones, allowing them to uh, bypass certain regulations, help the, helping them out in uh, gaining resources like land, um, allowing them to exploit your forest resources. All of these things are actually compromises, right? And we have to think carefully about how much or how far, how far we want to go uh, in all of these things. Uh, and uh, so obviously there's a trade-off here. So we need people to come and invest. But at the same time, we also don't want to make compromises that are going to be painful for us in the long run. So this is something that needs to be kept in mind. Otherwise, of course, this is a fantastic thing that uh, we are we are able to attract people to come and uh, you know open businesses here, make uh, make things in India, and then export, which obviously helps us. Uh, so, moving on to my last question, Amlan, uh, please, uh, if you can comment on India's economic outreach strategy to developing and developed nations in the realm of Indo-Pacific, based on the investment grid in the region. So India has, uh, as far as my understanding goes, we have had uh, important uh, trade agreements and deals with most of the countries that are going to be important uh, in this region, right? So we've, apart from China, perhaps, uh, but uh, China is also part of certain other larger uh, groups uh, or uh, agreements that we are into. So, like, for example, uh, we have relations with Australia, we have this similar uh, relations with Japan, uh, Singapore, and every other nation in that region around Singapore who are trading centers. Uh, so, these are also countries who are going to be at the top of the grade. It is important for us to be able to attract investment from these countries, especially because they are in the Indo-Pacific region. At the same time, I don't think we have approached uh, countries lower down in the grade uh, to a large extent. And that is, to some extent, understandable because, um, you know, attracting uh, investment is a costly affair and you would want to direct uh, these to uh, the most likely or the biggest one. I think that there are certain countries which are coming up maybe quite quickly and they in in future might be important people uh, or important countries that we want to have dealings with. So like for example, um, Korea has developed a lot and there was obviously at one point of time they were very small and now they are a big part of the world. Right. So similar things we should expect to happen with other countries, like, for example, Bangladesh is coming up. And we I don't think we have even imagined a situation where, uh, you know, uh, there are Bangladeshi investors coming in, investing in India. But uh, just because they are a small country, I don't think that's that's a good enough reason to ignore that possibility, especially going going to the future. It, it is also likely that there are going to be more countries of this sort uh, emerging 
uh, very soon. I don't really have a specific strategy in mind to uh, target these countries, but I just would like to flag that they are also potential partners. And if we are able to tap them early, it means that when they actually become big enough to have a lot of influence, then we are likely to uh, receive the best of their. Apart from that, thanks, Amlan. Do you want to comment thing on uh, India's role in implementing a holistic and broad-based vision connecting economic growth and sustainability in the Indian Ocean and beyond? So I guess the question boils down to whether we can provide uh, going forward a vision or a philosophy which can sort of uh, be transformative and in some way allowing different countries to transcend their uh, individual interests and to think about the region in general. Uh, now, firstly, I want to emphasize that this is this is something that we need uh, very badly because there is no framework really where all the countries in this region actually collaborate with a common goal. So, like, for example, there are different groups of countries like in North America, Europe, they, they have certain ideas that they would like to promote, certain objectives. We have never actually worked out a set of uh, goals or objectives for the countries in this region to that they can agree to and they can uh, they can pursue, and we badly need that. Uh, whether India can do that or not, I don't think that there is any indication about that as of now because nobody has tried this. Uh, it would be uh, if if we had some sort of data points to work with where different countries had suggested that let's do this or let's do something else. Uh, it would be much easier to make a uh, you know, comment on this. But uh, as of now, what I can only say is this is something that it's a void which needs to be filled and quickly. But uh, I have no idea whether uh, we actually, uh, we should be able to think about this in, in a constructive way. But since we have not done that yet, I don't have any idea what we, what this kind of a vision would entail. Thank you for sharing your insights, Amlan. Uh, looking forward to having more discussion with you. Thank you as well. It was great chatting with you. Thank you for tuning in. Rate this conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. To stay updated, visit our website ipcircle.org and follow us on Twitter at ip underscore circle. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by either the Council for Strategic and Defense Research or the Center for Policy Research.